Hello, and welcome to Hipsid the Podcast. Please note, this show was recorded prior to Hanukkah, so we could have some content for the holiday. And we apologize profusely to our guests and listeners for our shoddy organization. Any complaints should be taken with the management. <laughs> On to the show. On to the show. Okay, we're, we're on, we're rolling. Okay, I have to get my, uh, my The Price is Right voice on. Okay, good evening, or good morning, good afternoon. Welcome to the Hipset Podcast with me, Rabbi Semcha, and our producer, Robertson Sherry Barkley. Sherryville, to let our listeners know, Sherryville had a podcast studio in uh, Artist Alley in Bushwick, which, due to the evil gentrifiers... Uh, is going to become probably one day an ugly glass condo with uh, high maintenance, but lots of amenities that no one's going to use except me. Um, Sherry, you're moving the podcast studio. You're moving the empire. Tell the listeners what's going on because it's iconic. And it's it's absolutely, um, well, I don't know what the word is. It's dope. All right. Well, yes. So it's true what what, it, what he said, but also we have temporarily relocated the studio to a pizza place, Millie's Pizza, 834 Broadway. Come check it out. And then we rented an empty lot on 603 Hart Street it's on the cur- corner of Hart and Myrtle. We're renovating shipping containers. We're turning it into a mini mall of sorts, and it will have the podcast studio there available for use, it's called Myrtle Beach. It's coming soon. Now introduce our guests. It's called Myrtle Beach because it's located on Myrtle Avenue. Um, didn't mention that. And also, uh, Sherry, you may want to tell the listeners that I am a silent partner investor in, in the endeavor. So uh, it's an honor. It's a pleasure. It is a privilege just to let the listeners know that we're recording tonight's podcast in our mock-up studio in the kitchen of my gallery synagogue because I felt the optics were uh, pro- possibly um, problematic of having an Orthodox Hasidic rabbi perform a podcast in the window of Millie's non-kosher pizza restaurant in Bushwick. So anyway, moving swiftly on, tonight. Uh, we like to uh, bring the Hipsid listeners the finest, most current, most cutting-edge artists, uh, creatives, culture vultures, media mavens, content creators in Brooklyn today. And tonight, do we have a treat for you? We don't have one. We have two guests. Isn't that right, Sherry? I have to pass you the mic to agree. Yeah, two guests, uh, four voices, one a microphone. Uh, go ahead, introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Jessica Tamar Deutsch. Hi, I'm Arielle Stein. <laughs> okay, so uh, just to give the listeners some background, I have uh, I have cut and pasted your bios from the interwebs. Uh, this could be uh, completely false. Uh, let me know if it is. Okay, we'll begin with Arielle Stein, who earned a BFA at NYU. Ooh, NYU. Okay, in uh, 2014, uh, since you have spent time as an artist in residence with the Art Kibbutz and the Stony Point Center, and as a 2018-19 New Jewish Cultural Fellow with 
Brooklyn Jews. You, you, you've been moving uh, since graduation. Okay, so we also, Ariel's work has been shown in the U.S. and abroad and has been published in Barbed Magazine, H-E-C Review, Triangle House Review, and At The Well. Um, Ariel will also appear in an upcoming issue of Jake Currents, Jewish Currents Magazine, and is working, uh, which, considering who you're dating right now, I would expect you to be in Jewish Currents Magazine, uh, and is working on an illustrated Tanakh, wow, supported by the Hadar Institute, although I'm sure you would agree that perhaps um, the greatest height since graduation and perhaps since birth has been having a solo show in our gallery, the Hadass Gallery. That is certainly true. <laughs> okay. No, we, I don't know. <laughs> we, we edit, we edit. Okay, and uh, also, um, Jessica, may I call you Jess? Oh, pass the mic. <laughs> you may call me Jess. Okay, Jess, I got the bio. I got lots of stuff on you. I've been, uh, I've been insta, insta stalking. Okay, Jessica Tamar Deutsch is a New York-based artist. Your work explores the intersection of ancient tradition and contemporary culture. You earned a BFA in illustration from the Parsons School of Design, and you recently uh, published your first book. Uh, the Illustrated Perke Avat, which is available in all good bookstores. Uh, you were recently um, chosen to be one of the most uh, prominent and upcoming 36 artists under the age 36. Ariel, they didn't pick me either, so it's okay. Okay, so uh, I have some questions I'd like to ask um, both of you, but first I I'd like to uh, get... Current that Ariel, you currently have a show in the gallery, and unfortunately, this is the last night of the show. This is like almost uh, we are. It's like we're sitting shiver. It's awake. We're saying goodbye. It's uh, we've come to the end of the road. So uh, I'd like you to uh, explain to our listeners uh, the current show, what it represents, some of the themes, and uh, some of the um, the ideas behind the art. I believe all those questions were the same in different words. I'll pass you the mic. I also have a show opening November 3rd at Gitler and in Hamilton Heights. So come by that as well. Um, yeah, so this show is one of the first uh, groups of work that I've been showing that doesn't deal with the, f the human figure in a direct way, which was a really kind of fun and alternative adventure for me to put together. Um, this show is showing, t uh, sorry, <laughs> this show has two series, uh, one of watermelons, one of pomegranates, um, which grew out of a pomegranate series. I began a few years ago working on the stories of Eve and Lilith in the Garden of Eden. And that series was really focusing on kind of rebellion and the pursuit of knowledge and human engagement with nature. Um, and it developed into these two series I, where I was thinking a lot about kind of the nature of consumption, the way both the human body is consumed in contemporary culture um, and the way that humans consume the things around them, like fruit, like produce, etc. And then I think these series more specifically deal with um, kind of time and human emotion. I think the watermelons focus a lot on just fun and joy. 
And to me, the pomegranates are a lot more about the body and birth and the cycles of life um, and the seasons. Okay, and we were very thrilled to have the show up uh, during the uh, month of Tishrei. We know that uh, that pomegranates are a theme of Rosh Hashanah. We know that, uh, according to uh, the Jewish sources, that the pomegranate represents uh, one who is perhaps rusty and uh, rugged on the outside, yet inside full of life and full of seeds and full of possibility and full of potential. And we do have in the synagogue over here a renowned artist named Batsalel, and he loves the work. He is going crazy about the work. And there's one particular piece that he sits next to when he davens. I took it off the wall. It's right over here. So I'd like you to explain, because I'm curious to know what uh, this piece, we'll put it in the show notes. We probably won't, Sherry, because that sounds like way too much work. Um, but I'd like to know what inspired you with this particular piece. Uh, it's really gorgeous. Um, cool. Yeah, I think this piece kind of stands out from the rest of them. A lot of the other works are dealing... It's huge, man. <laughs> yeah, it's about 20 by 26 inches. Um, this piece shows two pomegranates, one on top of the other vertically, um, and is a background of yellow and grays and some other colors. And in these, the, the two objects are kind of breaking apart and bleeding out outside of the bounds of the image. And for me, this was about complicating uh, the themes that I talked about a bit earlier and drawing in elements of, I think, mostly of pain and transition into kind of the themes of seasons and the body. Um, so to me, this is a really sad image. I don't know if other people read it that way. Um, and I always thought of the interiors of fruits as being kind of exposed and bloody in a way, in all the ways that you could understand that. Wow, it's pretty eloquent. Okay, Jess, um, what do you see in this piece? Uh, so initially, uh, when I was talking to Ariel, um, I was sharing that my sort of Kishka gut reaction to these pieces was a lot of like joy and play, but um, looking at this one closer, I, there is somewhat well, on the bottom, on the bottom pomegranate, the larger one, there does seem to be like this really unique energy um, in contrast to the other pieces. Um, it's almost like this pomegranate is being torn open um, and you feel that energy and that intensity. It's very much like a punch in the face. Okay, Sherry, do you see intensity? Do you feel like this pomegranate is a violent punch in the face? Pomegranate is my favorite fruit. And sometimes I will get really excited about a pomegranate that I will buy at a grocery store at a premier price, you know, $4, $5, and it'll be rotten inside. And I don't know, it kind of just, that's where my mind goes right now. Uh, I'm just the producer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, oh. Yeah, something else that I think is really kind of relevant in this work, at least for me, is boundaries. I think the boundaries of like interior and exterior, especially during times of transition or change um, in nature or in the self. And I think this one really, I don't know, boundaries are really present there and transgressing those, I guess. <laughs> 
Something that I always strive for in, in my ministry and my life and in, in my writing and my creativity is that my external kind of actions should match and mirror my internal convictions. And, and very often, um, you know, I always tell people, don't look at me because uh, I get paid to be Jewish. And it's almost like I'm playing a rabbi on television. It, it, it's easy to stand in front you know, of a community and, and walk the walk and talk the talk, but internally. And I think and that's something I see. That's kind of a dynamic in these pieces, this, this sort of... Uh, uh, juxtaposition of, of the externality of fruit, the internality, and, and almost like you know comparing and contrasting that with the human body. I think it's really beautiful work. Uh, we're going to miss it, and we're going to miss having you uh, surrounding us when we pray, and uh, you know when we learn, and when we teach, and when we laugh, and when we cry. You're in. You're all over. You're all over this place. Okay. And uh, I'm going to take the work back. I, I, it's so hard for me to let go. I'm going to uh, personally drive it home with you. Um, I may try and nick a piece on the quiet. Okay, so I have a question for both of you that, uh, you know, clearly you're both extremely talented. And, and uh, you, you, were you both like the artsy ones in the classroom? And, and what was that like when everyone else was, you know, busy uh, playing uh, sports or playing with guns or, you know, sports and guns at the same time? Uh, you know, were you constantly doodling? Where, you know, where did the, uh, I guess, the creative itch begin? At what age? And, and was that something that was fostered? And I've, I have happened to have had the honor of meeting both your mothers. And I can tell you one thing. You both have... Incredible, like really, I'm just thinking about this now. This just came to me. You both have the most incredible, supportive mothers that go above and beyond. That were just there was so much. Even when Jess, when you had your show, and, and your mother is a good, I, we should tell the listeners. My mom was actually going to come today to bring some donuts for us to sample for a show. Um, it's sort of become her role to like be the caterer for art shows that I have. It's like her thing. Um, unfortunately, she couldn't make it out from Westchester. But yeah, she's very much like a mommy manager in that sense. Yeah, it brings her, I think, a lot of joy. <laughs> she, she's so supportive and, and so proud. And we should tell... You know, we, we must do that. We're going to do, uh, next year, we'll do another one with the mothers. In fact, just bring the mother. You don't have to come. Okay, so um, we should tell the listeners, Jess, that uh, our origin story goes back perhaps almost at this point a decade. Your sister, Rachel, was a student in Pratt. And even though she didn't stay that long, I think she left after a semester, she left uh, more, one, two... Uh, but she she was a regular. It was in the Eric Moed hoodie days, and um, she left an indelible imprint on my heart. And we've stayed in touch ever since. And the fact that uh, we're going to talk about this later on on the podcast, the fact that we're now collaborating, uh, and I've, I have this history and legacy with your family, you feel very much like a younger sister to me. So uh, I really I'm very blessed. What are we talking about? Ah. There was a question. The, yeah, childhood, artsy. Okay, yeah. Okay, we'll start with 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 uh, Ariel. Uh, when were you first, uh, you know, creative? When, when did the talent come from, and how was it fostered? Uh, my parents were modern dancers in Israel in the eighties, <laughs> so I think the seed was planted with them. Um, no, I grew up on Long Island. They all oops. Um 
I was always pretty artsy. I was involved with drawing. I have no uh, musical capacities whatsoever. But I wasn't really the art kid in the classroom. I got a D in high school art. Um, so making art, I think, is the one consistent thing I've been up to since I was really little. And I think like my earliest memory of childhood is I would make art by like cutting my hair and gluing it onto paper. That was, I was, I guess, I don't know, you'd call it someone a performance multimedia artist. Um, then the scissors were hidden. But yeah, I was always drawing. Uh, Baruch Hashem, I had no friends who were playing with guns. So that wasn't a thing I had to deal with. But um, yeah, it was a bit of a struggle in school because I felt like I wasn't really doing what I was meant to be doing until I got to college. Like I never did well in school until I began Parsons, which was really nice to finally feel like I was in a place where um, I could thrive. Um, and the amount of you know attention and effort that I'd put in would um, show ultimately. But yeah, I think that was, that was the whole question. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, Okay, so, um, you know, creating art uh, as a passion is one thing, but sustaining a life and creating art is something else. We know, you know, the stereotype of the starving artist, and I'm just curious to ask both of you, how do you fund your, your life style? And, um, you know, was that a consideration going to art school? And I've noticed... You know, maybe this would be the second question. Okay, let's 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 start with how do you survive? Starving artist. How does the starving artist survive? Yeah. Um, for me, it was actually a really big concern when I decided to study art. I think my family was pretty supportive of it. They funded a lot of my education, but I also had consistent kind of freakouts about should I also be studying business or should I just go be a lawyer, etc. I fund my work through either, I've had a lot of full-time jobs or a variety of part-time jobs. Usually try to work outside of art directly. I tried that for a bit and it was not a good match. Um, I'm really regimented in the studio. I feel like no matter what work I'm doing for money, I go home and I work almost every day. And then sometimes I sell art too and that's nice. Um, so I always really admire people who are able to do multiple jobs, but I sort of realized like once I was in college, like this is it. I can't really <laughs> do other things very well. Um, so it wasn't really a thought to study other types of skills or trades, but I did initially study fine art before I graduated with a BFA in illustration, but I was making like giant paper mache sculptures doing more strange performances, video art stuff. And then I had this freak out moment of like, who's gonna buy giant paper mache lockets that are life size? Um, <laughs> um, too bad I didn't know Sherry then. But yeah, I realized that you can make a living doing stuff that's illustration work. Um, and I definitely take on more jobs than I probably should be doing, but it is a real concern. You know, how am I gonna support myself? I think also if you want to have a Jewish lifestyle, there are certain things that are a bit expensive. Um, so that was something um, that felt like a very real concern to me in college. So the illustration thing seemed like a bit more of a safer route, uh, monetarily speaking. Um, side question for Sherry. Um, what's the craziest job you've ever had? I don't know if I can really answer that on this podcast. Sherry, go for it. <laughs> um, 
okay probably honestly one of the craziest jobs i've ever had was was yeah produce no well this is awesome this is you know this is right up my right up my podcast alley also i do want to say that i've always had a fantasy of a giant paper mache sculpture of a falafel so maybe maybe tonight maybe tonight was meant to happen um no i really i understand what you're saying it's always uh it's a risk but it's great that you guys have super supportive families um i've had you know i also have had a supportive family but you know the same thing you got to hustle you got to make it happen for me i would say definitely probably telemarketing in israel for a scam moving company where I had to pretend that I was in a moving office in New Jersey. I would give people fake quotes uh, for their moving jobs. And then what would happen was on moving day, after they're already, they've already signed their leases, they can't go anywhere, right? Three buff Israeli guys show up at their, sh- at their house with the truck and say, okay, I'm here, I move your stuff. And uh, it's going to be uh, $6,000. And then they'll go, but Jenny, a.k.a. me, we had to use fake names. When a company tells you that you have to use a fake name right off the bat, you know that it's going to be some weird stuff. So they're like, no, I have a contract here. Jenny said it was 3000 It's an ironclad contract. And they're like, okay, we can go. We can go take the truck. You call someone else. I should stop before I say what my boss would say in the morning to motivate us <laughs> to make the sales because let's get back to the art. Um, just to let the listeners know if anyone has any legal questions, uh, the show has uh, a legal counsel. Um, Michelle Itkowitz uh, is available at itkowitz.com and she uh, seriously, Mamash, deals with legal issues arising from uh, Sherry's uh, recent uh, comments. Okay. I have uh, some more questions. I have been uh, the rabbi of Pratt Institute for 13 years. So uh, I've had the, uh, the, uh, the honor to, uh, to mentor and be mentored by thousands of artists. And uh, I- I've had this conversation with Jess and Jess's mother that I've noticed at this point very often the artists that are the most successful are not necessarily those that are the most talented. They're all talented. You wouldn't be in art school if you weren't extremely talented. But it's the ones that hustle. It's the ones that are shameless, that will perhaps throw themselves in front of a mic or a camera and hustle. Um, You both have an extreme sense of calm and, and zen. And what's that like? I know myself, you know, as, as a creative, it's, and no one wants to be uh, pushing uh, themselves. It's, it's a little humbling. It's a little humiliating. So how do you deal, you know, with that contradiction of, of A, creating the art, and then B, having to sell that art, and in the process, sell yourself without selling your soul? We'll start with Jess. By the way, your voices sound very similar, so it's going, it's going to be a trip uh, for the listener. Okay, we'll start with Jess. Um, so maybe, Simcha, you're going to have to help my memory here, but right away, um, the story that came to mind when you were asking that question of, like, how do you play this balancing game of, like, knowing your worth, but also realizing, like, there are a million other people who 
could do what you're doing better maybe quicker um there's the story of someone having two notes in their pocket like and one note says um i'm but like dust and ashes and the other one is the world was made for me what's that story from i'd like to know the source it's good to cite your sources could be perke avos i would know if it's perke avos <laughs> it's a story um Whenever, like, let me tell you a tip as a rabbi. If you're quoting something, you don't know where you're quoting from, just say Chazal. The sages. The sages. (laughs) So the sages say you got to play this balancing game because on one hand, no one wants to work with someone who's like, I am the best, hire me. But also, like, you wouldn't go to a doctor who's like, I'm a terrible doctor. You know, you want to know that they're confident in what they're doing. I think the same is with any kind of skill, um, including art. You know, if I want people to hire me to make stuff or to buy things I've made, I, you have to be your best advocate. And, you know, there is definitely a way to do that without sounding like... Uh, I think pro tip from my life is make a lot of friends who are extroverts and will just promote you. Um, That's been really useful for me. (laughs) Um, I think also really believing in your work. I really believe that my work is valuable and thoughtful and good. And I also have realistic expectations around what I'm going to do with it. And I think that when I speak to people about it, I'm serious and I'm not promising something I can't deliver on. And I think choose your projects carefully. I think a lot of people uh, say yes to everything. And I've definitely been in scenarios where I got to a space and was like, actually, I will now slowly back out with my painting in my hands. Please never call me. Uh, Just kidding. I only did that once. Um, But yeah, I think. (laughs) No, that was not here. I think the people you surround yourself with are really useful, especially as artists. Uh, That network is really helpful. Beautiful. Okay. Sherry, care to comment? No. Okay, I have a question. Um, so uh, both of you are extremely uh, informed and infused by your Jewish identity. It's just dripping. It is la- especially Jess. It's like it is. Dri- it is y- your work is not Jewish. It is Jewish. Uh, there is nothing Israelite about what you do, uh, and uh, and Ariel's work too. So uh, you know, h- how's that been uh, as an artist? Were you that way in art school? And is it something that you're going to uh, continue to uh, mesh your spirituality and your artistic identity together? We'll start with Jess. All right, Jess speaking. Um, hmm, yeah, it's funny. No one's ever made that comparison with the Jewish and the Israelite. I think that's very clever. I'm going to use that. Um, yeah, my work is really Jewish. Um, it's... <laughs> Like so many beards, all the beards. Um, And I think when I started college, that was around the first time in my life that the art thing and the Jewish thing were starting to intertwine. And I was able to make the connections between both of them. And initially, I remember feeling a bit, I think, like self-conscious and like judging myself in my head like oh my classmates are gonna think I'm like this really weird religious freak I also got back from a year of studying in the old city at an all-women's seminary the year before so it was just like I was a lot um (laughs) coming into school but I quickly realized that there are way weirder things that people are making art about than Judaism um like just yeah 
yeah like any religious art or even zombie stuff um there's so many weird things and people don't really care what you're making art about as long as you know it looks cool and it's fun and they could see that you put a lot of effort into it and also people i think did enjoy learning what my work was about people really do want meaning and they don't really care so much what i found is you know where it comes from as long as you're not you know throwing it on them in a preachy sort of way Ariel, how does your faith inform, inform, and infuse your work? I think my way of thinking and talking about art is deeply informed by Judaism and was really formed by the Jewish <laughs> educational spaces I spent time in at different points throughout my life. I don't think Jewishness explicitly entered my work until after undergraduate. I think I had a lot of internalized anti-Semitism about Jewish art that really manifested in school. And I had a lot of shame, at least in the beginning, about bringing those things into direct conversation. And I think over time, um, I just realized that that was a little bit ridiculous. And someone told me a story once about being in a dance company uh, where the choreographer had them all do dances about something in their lives and the most success like useful advice she gave them was you have to do what you know um and judaism is so much a part of my life although i'm not like deeply observant that i think once i realized that that yeah that's like something that i really know and let that into my work i made a lot of progress um and recently it's been a source of direct content that's been really fun and a really useful way of engaging with the political moment um, Jess has cracked open the cookies, and uh, one of the uh, greatest gifts that uh, Hasidic Williamsburg has given to the Jewish people is popcorn. So, um, yeah, we got the popcorn. It's never good to eat popcorn and podcast. Uh, Sherry's freaking out on the sound levels over here, but uh, we're going to go with it. I've noticed, uh, actually, in Pratt, as you're speaking, um, yeah, take some popcorn. It's good stuff. Um, I've noticed in Pratt that very often uh, Jewish students... I think writers write about and artists, you know, kind of fall back on what they know about and what makes them unique and what's informed their worldview. And I've noticed a lot with Jewish students who may not necessarily have grown up, you know, um, particularly uh, observant. Um, suddenly, I fall back on on on, on Judaism. Um, I've lost count of the number of students that suddenly formed this fetish with the Hasidic Haredi world. It could be because Pratt itself is surrounded by, you know, the uh, Hasidic community. So every time you look out the window, you're seeing, you know, payers and a double stroller. And uh, it's almost, uh, you know, a daily uh, occurrence. A student will come over to me and say, Rabbi, I'm going to peel back the layers of the hidden Hasidic world. And, ex and I'm like, dude, you know, you're like number 1,000 million to have uh, had this realization. But go take your pictures and and have fun, but I don't think it's a superficial um, connection. You're both, it's, it's, a, it's deeply ingrained, it's, it's ingrained, you know? And I'm just curious going forward, if you have any future um, projects um, that, that infuse Judaism, and is it something that's gonna continue in your work? We'll start with Ariel. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the more I thought about gaze and the gaze through which I was making work as an artist, the more Jewishness entered my work directly and indirectly and just my way of talking about making work. I think in the foreseeable future, the most 
directly Jewish work that I'm planning on making is kind of a visual investigation of <laughs> Seder Nashim, um, which I loosely started while I was learning at Hadar last year. Um, and I think more broadly, uh, Judaism and Jewish thought and theology are really just a part of my daily life and conversation. And I think that's implicitly present in a lot of the work. Um, Sorry, um, cookies in my throat. (laughs) Good job as cookies. Yeah, so I'm working on, I don't know, maybe four projects right now. One is basically done. I've been working on this little Breslov-inspired book, but the goal for me was to make it not look Breslov. There are no beards. The character doesn't really have a gender, and it's a lot about nature. Um, So that's been a fun thing, I think, for me, just like as a growing human to constantly reevaluate, I guess, um, the way I'm using Judaism as an inspiration or a language and how do I want to play with that so it's like alive for me and not just like, you know, it's I think a lot of fun for me when I'll share a piece of work that people don't initially think I made because it doesn't look like something I made before. So I think it's important for people to give each other leeway to grow. And um, I also, I'm working on a book with a local Brooklyn rabbi. <laughs> I will say no more. Yeah, something else. This is Ariel speaking. I've been thinking <laughs> about a lot with like kind of the relationship between Judaism and my work as an artist and where those things intersect has been what feels like a lack of visual culture kind of in Judaism and Jewishness and really trying to be part of filling that in. Um, and that feels like a really interesting pursuit, especially as a woman artist. I'm just enjoying the popcorn. Um, okay, so I guess what I'm trying to get to, permission to speak freely, is very often Jewish artists, it's not, it's, it can be kitschy, tacky, trite, contrived, and and with you both, it's very natural, and it's very organic, and it's very holistic. And I'm curious to get your take on the Jewish art scene. Is there a scene? Is it a scene? And uh, where it's going? Ariel. So I am participating in the New Jewish Culture Fellowship run by Brooklyn Jews in Brooklyn. And one of the major foci of that project is to think about that question and people from all different media backgrounds are involved with that. Um, I don't know. I have a lot of trouble figuring out what the Jewish art scene relates to specifically. I think there are a lot of artists who are Jewish or of Jewish descent who make work that relates to that Jewishness in some capacity. I would also divide Israeli art and Israeli artists from that. I don't think they're necessarily the same thing. I think sometimes they overlap. Um, but I think in more broadly, like in the world, I think there's interesting stuff going on. I think a lot about Yael Bartana and her work around ethnicity and nationalism and Judaism and Israel. In, yeah. Uh, well, I could only really speak of, um, I guess, communities and geog- geographical locations based off of my 
own personal experiences and I do think there's a lot going on in Brooklyn and that's part of the reason why I decided to move here. Um, I was in Israel for a couple of months and there's definitely a lot going on there and I think even beyond just you know the traditional kind of Judaica that people will get on a trip to Israel. People are really trying to um, express Jewish identity in new ways. Um, there's lots of like dancing going on there and um, lots of cool festivals constantly. I really love living in Jerusalem and that was really inspiring for me to see. Um, yeah, and where do I think it's going? Um, well, I think we're living in a really cool time now also where there's like a lot of cross-denominational, I think, conversations. Um, that's something that's exciting to me, cross-denominational Jewish um, community. <laughs> I'm giving the mic to Ariel. <laughs> yeah, in terms of where Jewish art might be going, uh, these days I've been thinking a lot about diasporism and what feels like the resurgence of Jewish diasporist culture, especially in New York. And I think that's a really inviting space for artists. Um, it's thinking about doikite hereness and what is making art here as a Jew mean and really building space for that to happen. I think it's cool. There's a lot of writers involved with that. So come on, visual people. Sherry's nodding. We have. Th th I know what you're thinking, Sherry. This is the most eloquent guest we've ever had, right? Better than the usual uh, Hasidic rabble that uh, we draw. Sherry, care to comment? I I just admire so much your Ali Oops comment from before. So as soon as I heard that, I was like, these Jewish women uh, have a very unique thing to say about it and uh, that's all I gotta say for now Beautiful. this is you know I'm, I'm commenting a lot on hipsa today I usually don't as much that's but I think driver. yeah I think this is uh you know Simha's way of uh getting me back for this one microphone operation which is not normally what we Wait, do here this is the first episode where we have had women on the podcast Ooh. as as guests and somebody asked me recently Someone asked me recently, do, will, will you interview women? I, I didn't even think, like, it wasn't an issue. Would I, wouldn't I? It was just, I'll interview humans that are interesting, and uh, you're both extremely interesting to me. Okay, I am holding in my hand, Sherry. This is an incredible piece of art. It's a book. This is Jess's first book. It's the illustrated Poké Avot, a graphic novel of Jewish ethics. Um... You've had to remind people that you did not uh, write Perke Avos, um, but you just illustrated it. And this book has taken you all over the world, including a recent residency in New Zealand. So uh, I'd like to ask you, what's that like? Um, firstly, put it, I, know, I know how difficult it is to put a book together, and I can only imagine how much more difficult it must be to write the book and to draw the book. Um, Sherry, Sherry's grabbing the mic. Grabbing it. This is a, a sea change. As someone who has first been exposed to this work, it's absolutely gorgeous and very modern. It's super cool. I don't know if anyone's heard of this, but I'm a fan of, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm a big fan of like Dan Klaus and Black Hole. You know, Black Hole. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm getting... You know, yeah, I'm getting some art school confidential vibes. I love the font. 
Yeah, I'm really, I'm really into this. Yeah, yeah, exact. Yeah, it's very, very, very cool. No, it's cooler than it. It's it's post Adventure Time. Yeah, this is post Adventure Time. This is just kind of, again, you're hearing someone. You know, you're hearing just a, a first impressions from a Philistine, <laughs> and and it's it's gorgeous. So please take a you know let it let us know more about this work please you guys are so nice um <laughs> offering kiddish leftovers probably edit this part out back to the book um yeah thanks for all the nice things Simcha. uh so the gig in new zealand was actually through uh limud they have a limud conference in new zealand um it's been really amazing. Like this work took about four years of my life. Um, so it definitely feels really rewarding to know that people like it enough to pay for a plane ticket for me to talk about it with them in New Zealand for like two days. Um, that was great. Um, yeah, I was joking. Like I've been living in Brooklyn for like half a year now, but before that I spent like a good part of a year doing the nomadic book tour thing. And yeah, I mean, just really simply put, it felt really gratifying because no one like owes me anything. No one has to like this book or buy it, but enough people have that I've gotten free tickets to go to places. (laughs) I believe we've come to the crescendo the pièce de résistance. Um, is that that's the right phrase, right? Cherry. Cherry's nodding away. How's the popcorn, by the way, Ariel? Right. It's unbelievable. I know. It's fantastic. Um, I actually um, have been listening to previous episodes of the podcast, Sherry, and it's interesting. Once you uh, create, I don't know if you've noticed this uh, as artists yourself, but once you create something, everyone suddenly becomes a critic, and I'm getting people that haven't spoke to me in a decade are suddenly like, you know, you started strong, but at the end, we felt the energy. Like, suddenly, like, everyone's a critic. And as I listen to the, I noticed that suddenly I become a game show host. And my friend Gedalia told me I got to lower the voice an octave and make it more conversational because I get into the whole, unbelievable, yeah, whoa, yeah. And uh, I listened to the uh, previous four episodes and uh, it's just me going, whoa, yeah. And uh, I kind of don't like how I sound, Sherry. Uh, I'm on a tangent right now. But I felt, you know, because this is a creative uh, cast, I-, I feel much more comfortable uh, expressing myself. Sherry. Listen, if any of the critics want to come on the podcast <laughs> or edit the podcast, yes, exactly. You can go ahead. Yeah, exactly. We, we welcome you. We welcome all constructive criticism. Uh, just keep listening. And actually, you know, that's a good question for you guys. How do you guys deal with any kind of criticism or stuff like that? Well, um, as someone who's met Gedalia before and knows your friendship, um, I think he he's on that tier where he's going to be real with you oh, yeah. because he loves you. 
Great. Um, yeah, criticism can be really hard. I think especially when you're first starting and you're in school. Um, I wasn't one of those people who ever like left a crit crying, but I've witnessed many of those and it's heartbreaking, but like you definitely have to build backbone and confidence and I think it's important to always remember that like no matter like how good you think you're getting, um, like God willing, you won't peak in your mid 20s. You know, you want to always be growing. And I think that criticism is helpful. But sometimes I totally get into like boss mode and I'm like, I'm not showing this piece to anyone because I don't care what anyone thinks. Like, I just want it to be all of me, this piece. So um, certain pieces, they'll be like my own works and others. I know I need feedback. Like even when I was working on this book, I'd show pages to people who like don't read comic books very often just to make sure that anyone could pick up this book and read it. And whenever someone would be like, yeah, this page is a mess. Like, I don't know where to start, where it ends. Um, initially, I'd get really offended because this book was like my child for four years. But then I realized, um, you know, it's really helpful and it's good to get people to give you this feedback before you hit print. Ariel, how do you handle the haters? First of all, I'm no longer on Twitter, so that saves me a lot of strife. We need to get you asking that question first because you were too far from the mic when you said, how do you handle the haters? Look at the professionalism over here. Uh, Ariel, how, how do you handle the haters? Uh, so Tor at Torah Squalor is no longer active on Twitter, which helped. Here's also just like a small thing that I think it's important to remember, like not everyone's going to like your work and like that's okay. And initially I remember being really just like judgmental and critical of myself for like making Jewish art and like does that mean only like the Jewish people will be into it? And today, I think if you're saying anything, it's, you know, something specific, you're not going to speak to everyone. And I think that strong work will have maybe not the biggest audience, you know, if you're saying something real of substance, I think. I think criticism around art can be like somewhat uniquely painful because the work feels like a really direct expression of you. And I think it's important to hold that and to remember that when it is hard to hear. And I also think the more time you spend developing your work, the more confidence you can grow into with it and the more the work develops um for me i'm happy to hear reactions and i think that i've spent a lot of time figuring out how to sift through what can be generative and useful and what is just like rude um i'm really interested in like aesthetic criticism sometimes it's really hard to zoom out of what you're making and to see wow like that really doesn't work I also share an office slash studio with my boyfriend who is a musician and a writer, blah, 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 does not know anything about visual art, but I use his reactions as like a good gauge sometimes because he'll also pick <laughs> that background, what is happening there. Um, I don't know, get used to crassness and usually it's about the other person if it's mean. But quickly, uh, back to the Twitter thing, somehow I just took over this show. <laughs> um, <laughs> Can it was there a direct uh, moment or something? Why was there a moment you can pin pinpoint while you why you quit? Because you know we we all have to use social media so much, and I know Rabbi Simha also has a love and hate relationship with social media. Do you does do you recall that? Are you comfortable sharing that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'm really active on Instagram, um, so I'm not like fully off of social media. 
Um, for me, I didn't feel like what well, first I didn't feel like Twitter was actually really useful for my work as a visual artist. And I was getting sucked into like weird political arguments. And I also felt like Twitter, you don't really get criticism about your work on Twitter in the same way. You got a lot of like personalized violent threats. So I felt like kind of going away from that space allowed me to have criticism in my life that was like valid and relevant versus incels. <laughs> No, I mean, <clears throat> I wouldn't say this podcast has uh, experienced any hipsid hate. I don't think it's particularly that. It's not that successful. Um, but but I, I just it's interesting that every everyone's a critic, and, and you know uh, my wife being my biggest critic, and you know Ariella's always telling me, you know, you got to promote the podcast. And you have to um, talk about the podcast and you've got to be, uh, you know, posting about the. But I have to tell you something. I, I'm at a point for me where I do this for me and, and I have to create. I feel the need to create. In high school, I, I don't know, I was, a, I guess, a people pleaser. I was a class clown. And it's just something that if I don't do this and if I don't use my, my, my voice um, to talk in a constructive capacity, uh, I, I think I, I think I cease to exist. I think it's the real essence. It's the real core. I feel like crying right now. Um, it's just it's something that 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 I have to do, and it's it's just you know I do it for myself. And quite frankly, I don't care if these podcasts don't even uh, get published. I enjoy doing them. Sh Sherry's dying right now. They they make me happy, and it's important uh, as an artist to be happy. Okay, talking about happiness, Wait, we ah. Never forget, all press is good press. There you go. Uh, I was once on Stormfront, by the way, oh my God, Sherry. Yes. Yeah, everyone's, uh, you know, suddenly got excited about the alt-right. I was with the alt-right 10 years ago. Um, I was I was OG. When I wrote my book, Up, Up, and Oy Vey, uh, you know, I subscribed to uh, Google Alerts. Uh, sadly, I don't get many Google Alerts anymore. But when my uh, book first came out, I was getting them on a, on a daily, if not hourly basis. And I saw Stormfront. I didn't at the time realize uh, I thought it was a good thing I was like great I'm on Stormfront and I started telling people and they told me that's a neo-nazi site so uh, I realized oh that's not good um, but anyway Stormfront uh, want to uh, interview us uh, interview the Hipsid uh, podcast uh, we're talking to my attorney Michelle Ickowitz okay so we have reached the crescendo of the show and um, I'd like to talk about a personal project that I haven't uh, publicly spoken about at this point that me and Jess are, maybe not, that, that I haven't, you know, on the podcast, on the podcast, uh, that me and Jess are, are, are laboring, um, just to give you some background, uh, between 1508 and 1512, Sherry, um, Michelangelo painted the... Uh, chapel's ceiling, the Sistine Chapel, a project which, which changed the course of Western art and is regarded as one of the major artistic accomplishments of human civilization. So just to, uh, on, that, on that note and in that vein, that uh, I have been writing a uh, graphic novel memoir because I'm a narcissist and uh, need a memoir. And... Um, it's really about my, my time and my experience as an art school rabbi and becoming, uh, being a, an art school student that turns into an art school rabbi, which means I have the uh, bizarre and inspiring experience of ministering to myself as a student on a daily basis. I basically never left 
uh, art school. And um, it's really, it's also morphed into an anthology of Brooklyn. I've had a ground zero um, uh, bird's eye view on, on, I guess, this this kind of mesh together of, of Hasidic life, of artistic life. I don't like to use the term hipster Hasid because I find it a little tacky and trite. I prefer the term hipsid, which is the amalgamation of both um, concepts together. But really the book is also an anthology of, of what's happening in Brooklyn, how Brooklyn's becoming, I guess, the unofficial capital of all things uh, cool from a Jewish perspective. The fact that you both chose to live here, I, I think, uh, is is proof um, proof of that. So, Jess, that I was so thrilled that you agreed to, just like Michelangelo uh, agreed to take on the most important artistic endeavor in human civilization. So you chose to and agreed to be the artist, the illustrator of my memoir, of my graphic novel, um, which I, I, it gives me so much joy when I walk in the synagogue and I see you sitting there. It's very meta for me because like, I come from the campus and then you're drawing what I'm doing and it's, it's fascinating. So I'd, I'd like you to uh, talk about the book and uh, how's it going and where are we up to and... Uh, Obviously, you're thrilled. We know that. That's obvious. I mean, you, you must be, you know, beyond. This is, as an artist, you know, th th there can be no greater greater heights and no bigger uh, mountain to, to scale. Yeah. I, I think the exact term you used a few, I think it was a month ago, I came for Kiddish and um, I asked if you were having Shabbos. I think it was... Thursday night, pretty late. I was like, yo, Shab's happening here because everything in Brooklyn is like a pop-up. So what's your deal? And you're like, yes. And you're speaking. <laughs> and I think in your intro, you um, phrased it as you're empowering me. So thank you for this cover. <laughs> empowering me to illustrate <laughs> your autobiography. Um, what I think was also really cool before this even actually started, I think you reached out to me about this before my Perkea Vote book came out. Um, so that was really special. I think any time that someone like, you know, s thinks they see like potential in something and before they come out with like their first published thing, they're like, I believe in you already. Let's do this. Um, and you were very patient with me because I was like, thanks. I'm like doing my book and then I'm probably going to be doing the nomadic art thing for a bit. Um, so I feel like it's been a lot of time that this has been sort of like this idea of working together. And now it's in full throttle, which is really cool and exciting. Um, it's definitely a big challenge. Um, I've What's really fun about the challenge is that the style that I'm drawing this in is a lot more true to, I think my natural way of drawing like within my sketchbook, which is a lot of fun. I think the way you described it was like this spiritual mess, which I'm trying to make a little cleaner um, because we do need to get a concise story across. Um, so it's, I think, been a challenge for me to make something that isn't just this, like, spiritual mess. <laughs> um, what else about the process? So now we're in, um, I basically s did first round sketches Story of the whole thing. Yeah, that took most of the summer. And then because Simcha and I are both, like, Jewish professionals, the month of Tishrei, we just sort of, like, 
can't really be bothered with anything not holiday related and i did a few flyers for you i did some stuff with other jewish communities um so yeah now i'm taking up residence in the hadas gallery you could come visit me i should be here almost every day you could bring me snacks and coffee i won't refuse i promise blineda to have the almond milk um I just want to say, I don't want to overhype it because, you know me, I'm, I'm, I'm humble. I don't like to hype something. But much in the same way that Moses descended Mount Sinai holding uh, aloft the Ten Commandments, I have Sherry in my hands, the folder containing um, the, the, the book, the, the storyboards, and there, there is, in fact, some original panels over here, some finished panels. So we're going to present to the world a world exclusive over here on a podcast, uh, on a podcast um, which is perfect for, for you know, visual um, graphic novel memoirs. Sherry, you are the, and Ariel, this is a world exclusive. Take a look. This isn't. <clears throat> this is incredible. So where is this going to be a book? What is It's going to be a graphic novel of the beginnings of Hadass Gallery or No, it's actually a, a kind of year in the life of me and uh, it also uh, harkens back to my childhood and you know it's like pulp fiction it ch it you know goes back and forth and uh, also comment from Jess TD um, I feel like it's important for people to know before reading the book, maybe on this podcast, it'd be helpful to know that Simcha studied film, film history, right? Yes. Um, so I think a lot of the way the story is written is that there's these like zoom in and out moments that feel very cinematic and you like go like time is the thing that I think um, you play with a lot here. And I think that's a very cinematic quality. Correct me if I'm wrong. Just where's all where's all the Manchester stuff? Oh, it's coming. It's okay. Coming. It's coming. Okay. But, uh, Jess, you just uh, you just uh, peeled back the layers and got to the core of my consciousness. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, when I write this, when I look at this, to me, it's Citizen Kane. This is like Orson Welles, um, you know, classic. Uh, you know, voted as the greatest movie of all time. Uh, I see things very visually. As we uh, as we come to the end of the podcast, I thought uh, to give the audience. A world exclusive. So we're going to, Sherry, for the first time in human history, we're going to read the first few pages of Hipsid. Um, we're going to ask Sherry to play the role of Rabbi Simcha. Uh, we're going to ask Ariel to be the narrator. Uh, and we're going to ask... Uh, Jess to be the um, the other characters and we're going to for the first time in in human history okay all right guys all right one more time do we, do we have a name for this project it's called hipsid okay so we're starting hipsid okay now we're in the Chapter one, yes one. we're in the audiobook portion of this <laughs> podcast Chapter 1, page 1, Orientation. As the leaves begin to change each fall, so do the lives of thousands of students at universities around the world. Brooklyn's Pratt Institute is no exception. Interior, 
a lecture hall packed with distracted students consumed with their phones, a new class of French of freshmen packs into the <laughs> oh, <French>. yeah <laughs> sorry a new class of French <laughs> a new class of freshmen packs into a huge lecture hall gathering for their annual orientation they sit dazed and bored and overwhelmed texting and gaming as representatives from each department drone on about the challenges ahead panel two the talk is all student loans, campus aquatics, and library rules. It's business as usual until panel three. Our final speaker is the chair of the Religious Affairs Committee here at Pratt. I'm not actually sure what the Religious Affairs Committee does, but it looks like things are about to get biblical. Ha ha ha. Panel four, RSW narrates. As Pratt's spiritual leader, I'm supposed to give a quick spiel about campus ministry. I'm where it gets biblical speaker. Please welcome to the podium Rabbi Simcha Weinstein. He walks into the podium, then disappears. He clears his throat. Uh, Rabbi, again, you know, we'll have to discuss whether this gets included with no, the editor. This is, this is content gold. <laughs> All right. This is gold. Again, if, you're, if you just tuned in, we're reading from <laughs> the transcript of Hibsid, which is an illustrated novel. We are just reading the panels, these unillustrated panels. <laughs> yeah. So no, you have sorry. to listen and imagine. Two more pages, then we'll okay, page four. Yeah, yeah. RSW thought bubble. Do that in your head. Boop, 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 boop. Lately, I begin to wonder, am I too cool for school? RSW, Shalom Alechem, Professor Hughes. Professor Hughes, panel two. Professor Hughes, hey, Alechem Shalom, 